Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. This is the word of the Lord for us. It started with just a look. It ended up bringing more heartache than David could have ever imagined. You see, the king was struggling to sleep one night. He was restless. He was tossing and turning. His army was off at war. He was not with them. He was at home. He normally went with them, but he decided to sit this one out. Been there, done that, got the trophies. He's at a point in his life where nothing really seems to excite him anymore. It's kind of like when you turn on the TV, 500 channels, but there's nothing on. So King David goes out onto his roof. It was a cool spring night. He's looking at the impressive city. Maybe he's just about to go back to bed to get a little bit of sleep when he sees a woman, a beautiful woman. And instead of turning away, he allows his mind to be filled with thoughts of her. In fact, he thinks about her so much, he calls for one of his servants. (laughs) He wants to know about that woman. Oh, that is Bathsheba, he's told. And she's the wife of Uriah. He's one of your soldiers. David should have done no more, should have gone no further. She's a married woman. David is a married man. Hmm. But the temptation was so strong. He sends for her. Have her, bring her, come to me. And she does. And David sleeps with her. And then he sends her away. That's it, David thinks. It's over. I got away with it. But it's just a few days later. Not not very many days pass. And he gets a message from Bathsheba. I'm pregnant. Gulp. Uh Uh-oh. Maybe this isn't all just going to go away. Maybe this isn't all just going to be, I got away with it. What is he going to do? Just imagine if the Jerusalem tabloids get a hold of this. (laughs) He's going to be dragged through the mud. He might be impeached. (laughs) By the way, adultery was a... Punishable by death offense. And so, instead of doing the right thing and owning up to it and coming clean, David decides, I think I'll just cover this up. I need this to go away. But if you know the story, and many of you do, you know it's only going to get worse. David sends a message to the general of the army, who's a man named Joab. 
And he says to Joab, send me Uriah. Again, that's the husband of Bathsheba. And Uriah comes in and visits with David. And, and David puts on this sort of grand show of, oh, Uriah, it's so good to see you. And how are you? And how is the war? And how are the soldiers? And how is Joab? He's not really interested. It's just all part of this, this plan. Oh, Uriah, it's so good to get the report from you. Thank you. And while you're here, David says, why don't you go home? Why don't you go spend a little bit of time with your wife? Go, go there and spend the night and, and go back to the war tomorrow. Now, you can see through the plan pretty, pretty easily, right? He wants Uriah to go home and sleep with Bathsheba. And then, oh, she's pregnant, but it's his child and no one knows any the wiser. Well, Uriah thanks the king, but he doesn't go home. He sleeps on his mat with David's servants just outside the palace. And when David hears about this, he's confused. Why wouldn't he go home? Bathsheba's such a beautiful woman. He doesn't have to sleep here. I told him to go. So he calls for Uriah again. And he says, uh, stay another day. Dine with me. He sets out a lavish feast. Lots of wine. He keeps filling Uriah's cup. Drink more. Drink more. Until Uriah is drunk. Surely now, in this state of inebriation, David thinks, Uriah, go on home. Go on home and, and rest. We'll send you back to the war when you're ready. And again, Uriah doesn't do it. Sleeps on his mat with the other servants. In fact, he, he says, My master Joab and my lord's men are camped out in the open fields. How can I go to my house? And eat and drink and be with my wife. He says, as surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Ah, Uriah is a man of honor. Uriah is a man of integrity. Who has this deep sense of, these guys are out there in the muck. And they're risking their lives. And I'm not going to experience the lavishness of home. I'm going to sleep on a mat outside. This should make David feel even worse. That Uriah is such an upstanding, upright man. It should make David even more filled with guilt. And maybe it does, but it also seems to kind of make him angry. <laughs> like, like he is determined to make this thing go away. And Uriah just doesn't seem to be cooperating with his plans. And so the plans shift. If Uriah isn't willing to fall into this trap and believe the lie then we'll have to eliminate Uriah. And so in a, just a really twisted, awful, creepy scene, he sends basically a death sentence for Uriah in Uriah's own hand to take to Joab on the front lines. And it's a message that says, Dear Joab, it's me, David, and I'm sending Uriah back to you, and I want you to place him right in the heat of the battle. Like, push him to the front where the battle is raging and the war is the harshest, and then just pull everyone back so that he is struck down and dies. And I want to think just for a moment about the dilemma that David has just put Joab in. Let's, let's pause just a moment. Before we go further in this story, before we learn all the wonderful lessons and you've heard these sermons before, I'm sure. Let's pause for just a moment to recognize 
what a dilemma David has just put Joab in. Joab does what David asked. Spoiler alert. But can you imagine the agony, the nightmares that haunt Joab the rest of his life because he heard the cries of agony and death from an innocent man because he said, oh, we're going to retreat, leave Uriah up there. And did you know Uriah actually wasn't the only one who died? There were several others who weren't able to get out quickly enough, and they also perished. Good men, men of integrity and honor. And Joab has to live with the fact that that happened under his watchful eye, under his command, by his order. He's the one that called for that because David told him, hey, this is a plan, and I want you to carry it out. Can you imagine this prefabricated retreat that was meant to kill his good soldiers. And he gave the order. And he has to look himself in the mirror. He has to live the rest of his life knowing that it was at his order that those men died. So Uriah is dead. And if you think that that's the end of David's problems, well, you got another thing coming. No, no, David, this is not over. David had to learn the hard way to admit his faults. And might I suggest this morning that that's something we all need to learn, to admit our faults. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let me introduce myself. My name is John. I am thrilled that you are with us this morning. I'm praying that through our time together, your heart and home grow stronger in the Lord. We are in a new fall sermon series called Sorry. We're learning all about forgiveness and how to forgive and how to apologize. And this morning is the story of King David. And if you have your Bible with you, you're, open to, you're welcome to open it up to 2 Samuel. We're going to be in Psalm 51 in a few minutes. But this story of David comes from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And it's through this really uh, graphic story, we're trying to keep it rated PG this morning, (laughs) uh, that, that David learns this important lesson about the seriousness of sin. Yes, David learned to say, I'm sorry. He experienced then the fullness of God's forgiveness. But not before the pain and the guilt of his wrongdoing. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 27, after David had done these things, adultery and murder, the horror that Joab had to live with knowing that he had been commanded to do wrong, it says, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. He did wrong. He messed up. He dishonored God. Now, from the outside, it appeared that the cover-up was indeed complete. The adultery, the murder. So then David marries Bathsheba. Her husband was dead. Uh, it was a multiple wife situation, but he was uh, allow- apparently allowed to do that. There weren't, there, there weren't uh, you know, he's going to get stoned to death there. So the marriage is okay as far as their culture is complete. Uh, only Joab really knows the truth. And Joab is willing to keep the secret, so it seems. Joab's not going to rat him out. So only Joab knows. He's not going to tell. The cover-up is complete. But God knew. And God was not pleased. Oh, and David knew. 
and David was miserable. His sin haunted him day and night. He says this in Psalm 34. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He's saying, when I kept it a secret, when I kept silent, when I was unwilling to admit my faults, I was miserable. Oh, David, if only you would admit your fault. If only you would ask forgiveness. God is gracious and compassionate. Why, church, is it so hard to admit when we're wrong? Why is it so hard to say, I messed up and I'm sorry? David did not want to confess. (laughs) But God wasn't going to let him off the hook. And so God, in his mercy, chooses to confront David. He does that by sending the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan tells David a story. He doesn't say, I know what you did, you messed up. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He says, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms like a little pet. It was like a daughter to him. He says, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. He said, hey, you want some lamb chops? My poor little neighbor has this cute little lamb that it's always doting on. Let's take it and slaughter it and we'll, we'll, we'll barbecue that. David doesn't realize that this is a parable about him taking Bathsheba. He's incensed. What? Why did the rich man take the poor man's little ewe lamb? Doesn't he know how cute and fluffy and woolly it is? It's drinking from his cup. He's angry. He's so angry, he says in the next verse, verse 5. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And, and I really like Nathan and I like his delivery and I like his, the way he operates because he just lets David get all worked up and angry and he's red in the face and he's just spouting off about how that's so wrong and this guy's going to die. And Nathan turns and looks at David. I imagine he even points a finger I don't, the text doesn't say that, but he turns and he looks at him and he says, you are that man. Boom. He, he, he lets him know in no uncertain terms, what you have done is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And David is just undone. He realizes now. That story of the, of the two men and the one little sheep has helped him to realize the depth and the seriousness of his sin. He, he, he's undone. The fact that he's also been miserable and just bearing this secrecy 
And he realizes the severity of his actions and he falls apart. And then when he finally can speak, it's in verse 13, the first words from his lips are, I have sinned. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's in that place of brokenness, of being totally undone, unraveled, exposed before the Lord that he writes Psalm 51 that Christy read for us a few minutes ago. And so I want to turn there in our Bibles. Psalm 51. If you notice, there's a heading to this psalm, and it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's known as a penitential psalm. It is is known as an individual lament. It is a psalm of confession. And in this psalm, David shows us three key steps for admitting our faults. And the first is conviction. It's the first step for us admitting our wrong and admitting our faults is conviction. Like that moment when you're caught. (laughs) When you're confronted. When you're faced with what you've done wrong. And and you even, like, like in his case... Recognizing the gravity, the severity, how wicked this was. I should also say this is precisely why community and accountability and relationship is so important. (laughs) Because we need each other. Because we need to speak into the lives of one another. To help see when we've failed. Not because we want to condemn, but because we want to encourage and be restored. Because we want to see our brothers and sisters make things right. And again, I go back to Joab. When he gets the order from David. What would this story be if Joab had said, Hey boss, I hear you. Put your eye in the front, pull everyone back, he'll get struck down. I hear you. I understand the order. But boss... Don't do this thing. It's a different story, isn't it? If Joab does the right thing. And again, uh, it's unimaginable. When when you're under the authority of someone who tells you to do wrong. And we believe you always follow what God says to do. So if a parent, if a boss, if a teacher tells you to do something that's wrong, you don't do it. And that's hard. And I don't want anyone to ever be in that situation. But Joab was in that situation. Joab was not the person who spoke truth into David's life and heart. He carried out the order. It was Nathan who came, who brought that. So simply put, conviction is when we realize we've sinned. We don't hide it. (laughs) We don't try to conceal it. We don't pull a where's Waldo. (laughs) By the way, do you know why Waldo wears stripes? Because he doesn't want to be spotted. (laughs) No, it it took the prophet Nathan telling this story. Hey, I got a story, story, story time, king. 
two men and one sheep. It took him telling that story and David getting angry. Like, how could someone do that? Took his sheep, barbecued it and served it to the guest for him to grasp how heinous his sin truly was. Okay, so let's get into this. We're in Psalm 51. We're going to read verse 1. And I I want us to take note as we talk about conviction of, of David's awareness of his wrongdoing. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Let's keep reading the next couple of verses. He says, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Conviction is when we face our sin squarely, head on. I know my transgressions. I acknowledge my sin. Even if it makes you miserable, which it does. (laughs) It makes you miserable. You you feel this heaviness on you. You're under conviction. Sometimes you can't eat. You can't sleep. This is what David is getting at, I think, when he says, my sin is always before me. Like, I can't escape this. There's no respite. There's no time off. There's no time out. But did you notice he uses several different words to show how well acquainted he is with his wrongdoing. He talks about transgression. That has the idea of crossing a boundary. I went too far. I went into a place that I knew I wasn't supposed to go. He uses the word iniquity. That has the idea of a twistedness, a perversion, a wickedness that's truly twisted. And then sin, it's the idea of missing the mark. Why was I at home? Wandering around on the rooftop. He's the commander-in-chief. The Lord had called him to go to battle, but he chose to stay home. And so what, what we're seeing here in these first few verses is David is really confessing and wholly confessing, entirely confessing his misdeeds. He's not holding anything back. He's facing it squarely. His transgressions, his iniquities, his sins, they are always before him. He says, I know my transgressions. So the first step in admitting our faults is conviction. The second is contrition. So that's when you're sorry you've sinned. So you're broken in spirit because you recognize and you realize, I have dishonored God. So yes, our sin should make us remorseful. We should have a a true sense of being contrite and broken. I will say, as we talk about forgiveness, as we talk about, uh, about admitting when we're wrong, this is probably the thing, the feeling miserable, feeling sorry, acknowledging our sin, being, being truly broken over the fact that we've dishonored God. This is probably the thing in our practice, in our theology, that we do the most poorly. Why do I say that? It's because I see in the church, in the lives of Christian believers, a response to sin that's really glib. I see a response where where we're like, well, God's going to forgive me anyway, so I'll just do the thing and then I'll ask forgiveness. Or, yeah, I really messed up, but God forgave me. It's so great. Yes, God forgives us. We rejoice in that. But I think that what what we know from Scripture, what David surely models for us, is a brokenness 
over our sin. I've talked with Christian believers before and asked questions about regret. Like, what are the things that you regret? What are the mistakes made along the way? And I've had multiple people respond to me with, well, I really don't have any regrets because all of the experiences I've had, the mistakes I've made have shaped who I am today. Where'd you get that? You didn't get it from David. You don't get that from the Bible. Please don't tell me you have no regrets because all the things you've done and even the mistakes you've made have shaped who you are today. Because when you did wrong, your transgression, your iniquity, your sin, your sins of commission, your sins of omission, when you did or didn't do the things that God called you to do, you broke the heart of God. You spit in his face. Don't tell me that you don't regret that. Now, I don't want you to wallow in your regret. See last week's sermon. (laughs) I want you to walk in freedom and and newness of life in Christ because he does forgive us and removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And Romans 8, 1 says, for now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Praise God. But when we do wrong, my friend, this step is critical to be broken and contrite before a holy and loving God. To respond glibly to the forgiveness of God is to devalue The shed blood of Jesus. So we are truly sorry for our sin. To respond in any other way really misses the heart and the character of God. It's like the guy I heard about who cheated on his income taxes one year. Well, it really started to eat him up. He knew he had done wrong. He's miserable. For two weeks, he can't sleep. And so he gets an anonymous cashier's check and he sends it to the IRS, $100. He includes a note that says, to whom it may concern, I cheated on my taxes. I feel so guilty I haven't slept in two weeks, so I'm sending you this check for $100. Please forgive me. And then he put a PS. If I still can't sleep after another two weeks, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) We miss the heart of God when we respond to his forgiveness and he's going to forgive me, so I'll do it anyway. So contrition, this this key step that David shows us, it means we're truly sorry for what we've done. Truly sorry. We regret what we've done wrong. And by the way, if you want to know what the standard is for right and wrong... (laughs) I mean, some people want to play games where they go, well, is it really wrong? Well, what, what's really the standard? How do you know? Are there moral absolutes? Where does the Bible say this or that? If you want to know that, I will just refer you to the Bible itself and to the scriptures. Because they make very clear what is sin and what is wrong. In fact, I, I, I want to take a few minutes this morning and turn to a few passages of scripture. The first is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I don't have the the verses on the screen, so you're going to need to pull out your Bible and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. 
Paul says, don't you know that the unrighteous, <coughs> excuse me, nine. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? He says, do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. So if you worship at the altar of idolatry, whatever that might be, your work, your favorite sports team, yourself, if your heart is filled with greed, you confess it. You recognize, you, you choose to be like David and say, I know my transgressions. Because you're not going to be in right standing with God if you respond to sin with an eye roll. With a... If your response is, is it really that bad? Everyone else seems to be doing it. I want to take us to another passage, Galatians chapter 5. So we saw there in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says, don't be deceived. Look at what the scripture says. These are the things that are wrong and separate you from God. So same author, Paul, Galatians 5, starting in verse 19. These are the verses that come right before the fruit of the spirit, by the way. We know those. He says this. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. You can see them. And then he lists this whole, whole list. He says, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry. Oh, that was on the other list too. Sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Church, am I saying that anyone who's ever done these things will never go to heaven? No, that's not what I'm saying, because the good news of the gospel is that despite our sin, he forgives us and we're covered by the shed blood of Jesus. What Paul is warning us here with is these things are wrong. Recognize them as such. Don't fall into the lie that says, what's really wrong? Was that really that bad? Selfish ambition. Outbursts of anger. Well, I just am an emotional person. We make excuses for our sin. And what I'm suggesting is, if we don't recognize it, confess it, turn to the Lord in for seeking forgiveness, we won't be in right standing with God. And that's what Paul says very clearly here. I'm warning you about these things. Don't have that hard heart that fails to recognize your sin. Don't surround yourself with Joabs who are just going to go along with it. But make sure the Lord is putting in your life Nathans. 
And and, uh, hear my heart, friends. I do not read these verses to condemn you. You know, these are hardcore verses. These are two passages that are hardcore. Such as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But I do not read these verses to condemn you. I read them to warn you. Because as I read through these lists, I see some of these things that pop up in my life. God is holy, and God calls us to be holy. We don't strive in our own effort for that. (laughs) We fall with grateful hearts before his mercy. And because of that, listen, here's here's the good news. Here's the, the beautiful side of this. When we do that, when we recognize that we've done wrong and we fall before him humbly because of the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ, He covers us with his righteousness. The scriptures say God is jealous for you. He he has moved heaven and earth to be with you, to be in relationship with you. And listen, hear me this morning. When you sin, you break God's heart and you break fellowship with him. You scorn the cross of Christ. You scorn the great love and affection he has for you. So as we talk about contrition, let's jump down to verse 17, back back to Psalm 51, (laughs) down in verse 17. David says, my sacrifice, O God, is it a promise to never commit adultery and murder a soldier again? Is it a promise to show greater uh, willpower in the face of temptation? No. No. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And you know what the Bible says? It says God is near the brokenhearted. He draws near when we confess our sin, when we are contrite. He will lift up those who are humble. When we have a broken heart because of our disobedience to a holy, loving, good, heavenly Father. So we've talked about conviction. We've talked about contrition. The final step then is, to con- is confession. <laughs> to admit that we have sinned. To speak it. To name it. To own up to it. No blaming. No excuses. No semi-apologies. Have you ever noticed that some people are just really bad at apologizing? <laughs> Whether interpersonally or, or public apologies from celebrities or... <laughs> Or uh, politicians. I'm sorry if you were offended. Huh. I'm sorry if you misunderstood what I meant. Why is there an if? You're, it's a conditional apology. You're sorry if? Aren't you sorry because of what you did? Like, that's a really bad apology. Or, or the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, but the reason that I did this was. So hear me now. An apology, an I'm sorry, followed by an if or a but, is no apology at all. It's not conditional. Well, if you misunderstood, then I, then I apologize. No, you either did wrong or you didn't. It's not, uh, I'm sorry, but let let me just explain why I did this and then it won't seem so bad. That's just making excuses. Don't stand before God 
trying to make an excuse. <laughs> because he knows. Just confess your wrongs. I did this. I messed up. I'm sorry. So we see this uh, clear confession from David in verse 4 of Psalm 51. He says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. By the way, we should not interpret this to mean David didn't sin against Bathsheba or Joab or Uriah or the other men who died or anyone else for that matter. Um, he did. He sinned against all of those people. So we, we, can't, we can't make that uh, uh, assumption based on the fact that he says, against you and you only have I sinned. The, the point here is when we sin, we primarily violate God's law. That's really what's being emphasized here. The, the precedent for this is set all the way back in Genesis chapter 9 when God makes it clear, when you sin against another fellow human, you're sinning against me because they are made in my image. So that's kind of the precedent for this. Sin hurts God worse than anyone else. And so our first, our primary concern with admitting our faults is to be in right standing with God. Because when you confess, when you acknowledge your sins, you are doing so before God Almighty. And again, what good news we have. We know that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that he is faithful to forgive. David says that in verse 7 about the cleansing. So if we look at that, he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow. So God gives us a brand new heart and spirit. And that's what he emphasizes if we look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. So yes, sin has left a stain on each and every one of us. There's only one way to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be made new, and that's to confess our sin. To place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. On the sacrifice he made on the cross. To allow his robe of righteousness to cover us. Not our good deeds, they're like filthy rags, the scriptures say. In fact... If you want to do that today, confess sin, you can do it right now where you're sitting. You can come up after the service. Our prayer team will be here to minister to you. We would love to pray with you and go before God's throne of grace with you. But I urge you and I implore you and I warn you, confess your sin. God stands ready to forgive, to heal, to bless you. And I'll say this, admitting our faults really should be a normal part of the life of a believer because we mess up because we make mistakes this should be a normal part of our lives falling short and naming it and owning it feeling the weight and the depth of our sin and being mindful that each and every day we've got to examine our hearts in the light of god's word and then i believe and this is really cool as we close this out but part of the reason that the lord calls us to do this very difficult and very humbling thing when we've sinned is because God does indeed use our stories to help encourage others. He doesn't want us to do wrong and then say, I'm going to have you do wrong so that I can use that for, for my glory. But he takes our wrong 
after his heart is broken and forgives us and then, despite our wrong, uses it for his glory. In fact, if we look down at verse 13 in Psalm 51, David says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. So what? Sinners will turn back to you. Because when you know the goodness of God, you want others to know it as well. What a joy. What a joy to know that the Lord might use me. The Lord might use you to build his kingdom, to point the way to another weary traveler on the road, to go maybe even as Nathan did, to speak the truth in love, to walk in freedom, knowing we don't have to live up to perfection, but we do live humbly in grateful response to a great God who has forgiven, who has redeemed, who has restored, and it's all for his glory. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we humble ourselves before you because you are God and we are not. So Lord, would you have mercy? You know our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions. You know the times we've failed to act. So Lord, would you help us see clearly? And would you give us humble hearts to admit our faults and to seek after your way, knowing that in you there is hope and life and freedom. I pray that this morning, Lord, that as we turn to you with sincere faith, you in your faithfulness and mercy would heal us and restore us. Yes, Lord, the joy of our salvation that's only for our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray these things.